Good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning, and it is a good day to be in God's house. I hope you'll open your copy of the Bible, if you have it, to John 8, verse 12. If not, we're going to project everything on the screen, Lord willing. So uh, we're going to be talking about our second of the I Am statements today. Unless you watch the TV show The Crown on Netflix, you're probably not aware of the story I'm about to tell you. But in 1952, an incident happened in London, England that ended up claiming 12,000 lives. And it's largely been forgotten to history, but what happened was it was an especially cold winter at that December in England. And London, a city of millions, all kind of crammed together, when they added more coal to their fires to get warm, that put a lot of black smoke into the sky. And that smoke mixed with the legendary London fog and created a, a smog that just blanketed the city for days. In fact, it was so dark that in broad daylight, you couldn't see your own feet as you were standing up. It was so dark that cars couldn't drive. Some cars ended up abandoned in the roads, and so ambulances couldn't travel. If you needed to get to a hospital, and trust me, if you were elderly or a small child or you had any kind of breathing issues, you needed to get to a hospital, you had to walk. And walking meant shuffling because you didn't want to run into another car or another person or some other obstacle or end up falling down a manhole. I mean, awful things happened. And it got worse as the time went on because the dark made things colder. And as Londoners got colder, they put more coal on their fires, which just made the problem even worse. And it all sounds a lot like our world to me. You know, I'm a preacher, so anything is, a, is an illustration. But I think about how God, according to Genesis, created a perfect world, a world with no sin, with no death, pain, sorrow, or trial. And then our sin brought pollution into our world. Our sin warped the perfect world God had made and made it dark. And in our darkness... We'd lost our source of light and hope and joy, and so we looked for it in other things. And so in our sin, we just kept heaping more coal on the fire. And the further we got from God, the darker we felt, the colder we felt, the more we sinned, and it was just a vicious cycle. And into that dark world stepped Jesus 2,000 years ago and said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. And believe it or not, of all the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, this one, when Jesus said it, was the most controversial. It's the only one of the seven that almost got him arrested. And what I want to do today is two things. I want to look at, number one, why such a, a seemingly hope-filled statement would be so controversial in its time, because it's interesting for us to know what Jesus was really saying. But secondly, I want you to see how do you know if you're walking in that, in that light? It's not enough to just say, well, I'm a member of this church, or I, I, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. How do you know you're actually walking in the light he provides? So first of all, why was this statement so controversial? Probably a lot of you know what the first spoken words of God are in the Bible, right? Let there be light, Genesis 1-3, and there was, and it was good, but throughout the Bible, the, the, the word light is used as a symbol for life, for truth, and for joy. Let me just give you three examples, three of many I could have chosen. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And then Isaiah 9.2, which we often hear at Christmas time, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. So that's David, Solomon, and Isaiah, all three saying, Let me tell you how to get to the source of light. The source of light is the God of Israel. He's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Come to him and have light. Jesus comes along and doesn't say that. Jesus comes along and says, I am the light. Now that's pretty audacious. But there's even more to it. You see, Jesus is speaking these words in the temple in Jerusalem, and it's during a specific time. According to John 7, he came to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Sukkot is what they called it in Hebrew. This was one of the three big pilgrimage festivals of Israel. If you were an Israelite and you could get to Jerusalem, if you had the money and the physical ability, you had to get there for one of these three festivals. Feast of the Tabernacles or Sukkot was a remembrance of the the time when the Israelites were traveling on the exodus between Egypt and the promised land. For those 40 years, they lived in tents every night. And so every day during the during the Feast of Sukkot, they would build these little patchwork sheds or or booths or tabernacles, and they would live in them. As a kid, it probably was your favorite festival because it was like camping. And you you would camp out in these little booths all week long with your family, and you would feast at night. And at night, they would light these candelabras in this big candelabra in the center of the temple. And it was so huge, so many candles that the light would spill over the walls of the temple out into the city and people would be drawn to it. And that symbolized during that Exodus, when you read in the book of Exodus, the Israelites, everywhere they went, they were guided by the physical presence of God. They called it the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is a Hebrew word that means dwelling. God is with us. They'd look out and if it was daytime, they'd see a pillar of cloud. That's the glory of God. He's here. And if that cloud moves, we need to pick up everything and move with him. And at night, it was symbolized by a pillar of fire, just this flaming pillar in the sky that said, God is still with you. And Jesus, guess where Jesus was standing, by the way, when he said these words? He was standing in the treasury of the temple where that candle was lit every night. He wasn't being very subtle, was he? See, the the Israelites knew that the story uh, of the building of the first temple, when Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, the first day they dedicated it to God, that Shekinah glory reappeared and appeared inside the temple. It was so full of cloud that the priests couldn't see to offer their sacrifices and they had to put off the, the, the consecration for a full day. And that was their sign. God is here. God is blessing this temple. When you go to this temple, you will meet with God in person. But then hundreds of years later, the, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision in which the glory of God departed. Remember, that was during the time when the Israelites had lost their nation and they'd been displaced because of their own sin, because of their own idolatry. Ezekiel saw this vision in which that cloud left the temple and went somewhere else. And ever since then, the Israelites have been wondering, when is God going to come back? When is he going to return to our temple and be in the presence of his people once again? And so when they lit those candles every night during that feast, it was a celebration of what God had done in the past, but it was also bittersweet because they were saying, when is it going to come back? And Jesus standing there in the midst of the temple is saying, I am the glory of God. I'm the Shekinah glory in your midst. I am the light of the world standing right here. Come to me. 
Now, that's why it was controversial. And he still says that today. He is still the glory of God in flesh. He is still the light of the world that brings you hope and light and joy and truth. But how do we know when we have him? It's not enough to say I'm a member of First Baptist Church or any other church, or I've been baptized, or I've gone through confirmation, or I believe these doctrines. How do you know that you're walking in the light? I want to talk to you about three ways, three things that should be going on in your life if you're walking in the light of Jesus Christ. This is good for those who aren't really sure what they believe about Christ, and I hope you're one of those. I hope there are some of those people watching right now or or even in, in this room. It's also good for those of us who know we believe in Jesus, who know we're his followers, to ask the question, am I daily walking in that light? So three signs. Number one, when you're walking in the light of Jesus, we see people through his eyes. We see others through his eyes. When I was a little boy, I went through a phase where I would sleepwalk. And usually I wasn't aware of the fact that I had sleepwalked, if that's the way you put the term, until the next day when my mom over breakfast would say, last night I heard somebody walking around in the house and I got up and I found you stumbling around like a zombie and I kind of guided you back to the bed and, and covered you up and you went back to sleep. And I'm like, huh, I don't have any memory of that. But there was one time specifically when I remember it happening because of a traumatic event. Now, let me tell you the story because I even remember the dream I was having. Wasn't a very exciting dream, but in the dream, I had found a rock in the house and I thought, well, I need to throw this outside. So I walked to the back door in my dream and for some reason, the knob wouldn't turn. And in my dream, I'm sitting there turning the knob. Now, in the real world, it's about one or two in the morning and my father hears the sound of someone trying to open the back door of the house. He hears this click, click, click of the knob of the house. You can imagine. He sits up in bed. He leans forward from where their bed was and the way he was sitting. He could just barely lean over and see the back door of the house. And he sees this tiny shadowy form. I was a little guy. And, and I'm just thankful my dad isn't one of those people who sleeps with a loaded gun by his bed, right? Don't do that. Come on. My, you know how when you first get awoken from a sound sleep, you kind of know what's going on, but you kind of don't. My dad sort of knew it was me, but he sort of didn't. And so he yelled out my name as loud as he could. So just imagine you're me. And one second, you're having this fairly boring dream where you're, you're trying to open the door and throw a rock out the door. And the next moment you wake up, it's pitch black and your dad is yelling at you. So yeah, that was a little scary. Thankfully, it wasn't worse. But here's my point. If the same thing would have happened in the daylight, no big deal. What are you doing, Jeff? Well, I found a rock. I'm going to throw it outside. Well, go ahead. Darkness was the thing that made it scary. Darkness was the thing that made it a threat. When we can't see each other, we tend to hurt each other. We tend to run into each other. When Carrie and I first got married, I don't know. I don't have any way of proving this, but I I just believe there's never been a couple that was more crazy about each other than we were. I mean, we were, it was disgusting. But, but we get married and suddenly all that's gone. Suddenly it's like some magic switch got thrown and we hated each other. It was awful. Now we didn't, we didn't come close to divorce. Homicide was discussed, but, um, and the problem was there wasn't, I mean, we didn't cheat on each other. There wasn't abuse. There wasn't addiction. There wasn't debt. It wasn't anything serious. It was just that we couldn't see each other's point of view. We came from very different worlds. Our expectations of each other were different. We just didn't see life through the same set of lenses. It took us a long time to be able to understand each other. And I've been a pastor for a long time now. 
And I've seen a lot of conflict, sad to say, in the community and in, our, in churches. I've seen churches split and never over anything substantive. I've seen couples, families break apart. I've seen kids stop talking to parents. I've seen friends stop talking to one another and alienate from one another. And in almost all of those cases, in almost every one of those cases, from my objective point of view, I can look and see, you know, if just one of you had the humility and the emotional maturity to just go to the other one and say, okay, I'm not gonna talk about anything I have against you because it doesn't matter. I, here's what I've done to you, I know. I'm gonna list all the things I know that I've done to hurt you, all the ways that I've contributed to this problem. If you wanna add to my list, then go ahead. But here I am standing before you saying, this is at least in part my fault and I wanna do what I can to make it right with you. You know, if they would have done that, the whole conflict would have been solved. Marriage would have been fixed. Friendship would have been saved. Church would have stayed together. But we don't do it. We walk in the dark, and therefore, we hurt each other. Therefore, we can't see things from their point of view. Jesus is the answer. In 1 John 1, 7, he says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we Baptists have kind of ruined the word fellowship. We've turned it into sort of a sanctified word for party. You go into a party? No, I don't party. We're going to a fellowship. But that's not what the word means. The word means, in, in, in Greek, it's literally, it's koinonia. It means oneness. It means family. It means being connected to one another. You want that? You want good relationships? You want strong relationships? You want a life free from all this useless stressful conflict that we see even in our nation today, where it's always, it's always that person's an enemy, that person is uh, someone I can't trust, that person is a threat. You want peace in your life? Then walk in the light of Jesus Christ. If your life is one conflict after another, it's time to come out of the darkness and walk in the light he gives so he enables you to see others through his eyes. Second sign you're walking in his light is we see ourselves clearly too. If you've ever raised kids or if you've ever taught uh, in an elementary school classroom or Sunday school class, then you know that little kids have an infinite capacity for self-justification. It's never their fault. Have you ever noticed this? So you've got a, a little boy, little girl, uh, and you come to her and you're like, okay, uh, I, I thought I told you we were going to save that last piece of cake for your dad when he gets home from work. Why did you eat it? Well, I didn't eat it, she says, with the last bite still in her mouth, with her face smeared with chocolate icing, right? She even blames her little brother, who's five months old and can't even crawl, much less get to the refrigerator and open it. In fact, I believe... After raising two kids, I've come to believe that's the reason kids make up imaginary friends. So they'll have someone else to blame, right? It's not my fault. It's, you know, Susie. Well, who's Su well, Susie? Don't you see her? I mean, we, we can't just let someone, we can't just say, I did it. We can't see ourselves clearly. And some of us never grow out of that, especially those of us who we elect to national office. <laughs> right? It's not my fault. I didn't do it. It's someone else. Well, what about them? But the light of Jesus Christ helps us to see ourselves clearly. The light of Jesus Christ shows us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. 
And not just sinners in a general sense, like people say, well, I know I'm not perfect. No, we're distinctly aware of the specific ways we have transgressed against God, the ways we've hurt others, the ways we've made poor decisions, the ways we've disgraced our family and our Lord. We see ourselves clearly and we're able to receive His grace. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul writes and says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. We were darkness, but now we're light. That's the testimony of every believer in Jesus. Your testimony is not, well, I was raised in church, and when I got old enough, I just figured it's time to follow Christ. No, your testimony is you were in darkness, and now you're light. I read a testimony uh, this uh, recently on the Gospel Coalition website written by a guy named Beckett Cook. Cook was, for many years, a a production designer at a Hollywood firm, worked in the movie business, well-respected, very creative, highly, highly uh, lucrative job. He was also an actively gay man who marched in gay pride parades and and lobbied for uh, gay marriage to be legalized in the nation and had a series of boyfriends. And then, in 2009, against all his expectations, he came to know Jesus as his Savior. As he puts it, one day I was a gay atheist. The next day I was a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And it changed everything for him. Although, although, like this is true of a lot of my friends that, that share a similar testimony, who also have same-sex attraction, and yet they're followers of Jesus, they tell me it, it's not that the same-sex attraction goes away. It's not like I suddenly wake up the next day and I'm heterosexual. Those, those attractions are still there. But I now know that God's, the God's light has shown me that the way I used to think is where I gained happiness brings me only destruction. And so Beckett Cook said, I made the, the choice that I was going to live as a celibate man for the rest of my life or until God changed my orientation if he chose to. That was my choice. Now, that's a big sacrifice. That means I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. Uh, that means a lot of things are sacrificed. In addition, a lot of his friends stopped talking to him. People who used to think he was a great guy just avoided him. And it it was ironic, he worked in Hollywood, an industry where when a celebrity comes out and, and says, I'm embracing this lifestyle, they're celebrated. Well, he had embraced something different and he was condemned. He was ignored, he was shunned. In fact, his own company fired him after a while. And they didn't say, we fired you because you're a Christian, but. It was like one moment he was their best designer. The next moment they were telling him, we don't need you anymore. Now, in his article that he wrote, here's what he says. He says, I'm not complaining. I'm not claiming to be a victim. What I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. Like the Apostle Paul, I'm learning to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Philippians 3.8. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career were harsh, but being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. And that's our testimony too. Although you may have nothing else in common with Beckett Cook, you have this in common with him. You once were in darkness and now you are in light. And then Paul says, so walk as children of the light. And you may ask, well, why does he even need to say that? Because if we've come out of darkness into light, why, do we, why, does he, why is there anything left to do? And in, in evangelical circles like ours, we're not really told the rest of the story oftentimes. Every, the emphasis is on walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, make sure you are in the family of God. Getting saved is what it's all about. But in the scripture, we see that's just the beginning. 
Paul says, walk as children of the light because he knows that we as Christians have this terrible tendency to forget the gospel and just think, well, I'm in the family, so there's nothing more to do except wait for heaven to start. No, there's so much more to do. Walk in the light. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden which is a curious thing to say. How could Jesus say, I am the light of the world, and then say, you're the light of the world? Well, in the same way that on a full moon night, you can walk around without a flashlight because the the light of the moon is shining. You know the moon doesn't produce any light, right? It's just a rock up in the sky. The moon shines because it's reflecting the light of the sun. In the same way, we're the light of the world, not because we've got anything inside of us that, that blazes out light. We're the light of the world because we reflect the light of Jesus Christ. The people of this world should see his light reflected in us. In fact, two verses later, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. A sign that you know you're walking in the light of Jesus Christ is your, light, your life is drawing people to you and to the gospel. A sign that we collectively are walking in the light is we're seeing lost people get saved. That's what we should be seeing. Here's another analogy, and this one not from the scripture, so it's not as good, but it's, it's up to date. I'll tell you this. It's as if we're the only ones on the block who have a generator and all the lights just went out. Sound familiar? Some of you experienced that this, you know, a week ago, you looked out your window and you're freezing cold and it's dark and your neighbors have all the lights on and you're like, what's going on over there? Imagine we're the ones with the generators. We're the ones that have the ability for light. If your neighbors had come over and said, hey, listen, um, we've got a couple of spare bedrooms and our heat's working and our lights are on and water's running just fine. Would you like to come spend the night with us until you're Everything gets going for you again. Unless you think they're cannibals, you're going to take that invitation, right? So that should be the case with us too. We should shine the light of Jesus Christ so powerfully that people should be drawn to us. And when we want to talk to them about our faith, they shouldn't freak out and run for the hills because they'll say, you know, I've seen your life. You've got something going on that I'm lacking. And the fact that we're not seeing more people come to faith in Christ means that what we really are as Christians today, we're fools who are stumbling in the darkness with generators that we're not using. The light is there and we're not using it. I don't know, would we rather be like our neighbors when we have the light of the world? When you have the light, you see yourself clearly, clearly enough that every morning you wake up and say, God, I can't make it today if I, don't, if I don't walk in your light. Lord, show me the sins that I need to confess. Show me the ways that I've strayed from you. It's a daily decision to follow him. Are you doing that? Number three, you know you're walking in the light when you see ahead of you. We see ahead of us through the light of Jesus Christ. We know what's coming. Not everything down to the last detail, but we know the end of the story. And that's our hope. Revelation 21, 23 through 25 says, and the city, the city meaning the new Jerusalem, the place we're going to live someday. This is heaven he's talking about. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Imagine a world where there's no crime, where there's no war, where there's no anger, where there's no family dysfunction. Imagine a world where there's no illness, where there's no injury, where there's no death, no more night, no more darkness. That's what we're headed towards. That's our hope. Remember when you were a kid and it was the last week of school and nothing could get you down? You know, ordinarily when Susie was mean to you, it would make you cry, but not this week because it's the last week of school and Susie can go flush her head in the toilet. You don't care. You're about to be in summer vacation. Bobby stole your lunch money. That's okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to be home every day. We are, as Christians, we're living in the last week of school because we have hope, because we know what's coming, because we don't have to be afraid anymore. That's, that's what the world can't give you. If you put your hope in anything else, you will be disappointed. Oh, if I can just make it to vacation, if I can just make it to retirement, if I can just make it until I get married, if I can just make it until I have kids, if I can just make it until the kids leave the house, Whatever you're hoping in, it's going to disappoint you unless it's this, unless it's the hope you have in Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, okay, I can see myself clearly in Christ. I can see others clearly. I can see what's ahead clearly. But why should I believe any of this? Because after all, haven't there been dozens, if not hundreds of people, usually men who claim similar things, who say, I've found the truth. I went into a cave. I had a vision. Here's how you get to heaven. I, I, I've meditated upon it. Now here's the plan. Here's how you get to nirvana. An angel came down and opened these two gold tablets and then he took them away conveniently so I can't show them to you. I mean, there's all these people who come and say, I have found the truth. Why should we believe in Jesus? You know, Jesus wasn't believed in his own day by most of the people who heard him. They wanted to arrest him. And here was his response. Verse 28 of chapter 8, he said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. When he said, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, he was predicting his own death. We know this because he said it two or three more times, and John tells us in John 12. He's talking about his death. When you lift me up on a cross, then you'll see. Then you'll see that I was the light. And then in chapter nine, right after this, he says it again, I am the light of the world. And he gives sight to a blind man after he says it as if to say, look, what I'm doing to this guy, I'm gonna do to the whole world. Everybody who believes in me is gonna see the truth through me. And then, and then came the day, not so very long from this day when the people who had hated Jesus for years, but all that time had been unable to get their hands on him. They finally got their wish and they took him to a hilltop on the outskirts of the gates of Jerusalem and they lifted him up on a crossbeam. And they stood there watching him die slowly, painfully. And they had no idea what they had unleashed on the world because suddenly the light came into the hearts of human men and women, ordinary people like you and me, stumbling in darkness the next moment, they changed. The next moment they saw clearly. And it changed everything in this world. 
And that means, that means if you're walking in darkness today, if you would say, Jeff, the, the way you describe light and dark, I'm more, I'm more dark than light. My life is full of conflict and I, I constantly make bad decisions and I don't know the way and I don't have any hope. Well, then your answer is not try harder to be a good person because that never works, not for long. Your answer isn't even just become a part of my church, although I hope you will. Uh, the answer is you need, to the come, you need to come to the place where they lifted him up. You need to come to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you need to say, Lord, I'm in darkness and I need your light. I don't even know what that looks like or what it means, but I know I can't do it. And I believe you can. So come to the cross and you'll walk in light for the first time and forever. Now, let me just close with this. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of all time, the, the goat of Baptist preachers, if you, if you will. Uh, English Baptist told his conversion story over 280 times in his sermons. His sermons have all been printed and bound and people read them to this day. So his story is, he was a 15-year-old kid, raised, of course, in the Church of England, like everybody else in that country in that day, he didn't know who God was. He was pretty sure he wasn't getting the straight story from his priest. He was convinced there was a God. He wanted to know who God was. He wanted to know what he needed to do in order to follow God. And so in the city of London back in the 1850s or so, there were churches everywhere. There were tons of them. So every Sunday he went to a different church hoping to find who is God? What does he expect of me? One Sunday there was a blizzard outside, just an absolute whiteout. Most people stayed home, but 15-year-old Spurgeon decided to get out and, and try to make it to a church. The closest church to his house was a little primitive Methodist church. That was the only place he could make it to. He got there. There's this tiny little band of people there, just a handful of folks in this big sanctuary. Even the preacher himself couldn't make it. And so after a few minutes, the, uh, the oldest man in the room got up, opened his Bible, and stood at the pulpit and tried to preach a sermon on the fly. That's not easy to do, especially when you're not a trained speaker. This guy was not. He opened his Bible to Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And you could tell this guy didn't know what he was doing. He just kept reading that verse over and over again and making these little comments that he hoped were somewhat profound. And Spurgeon was just starting to think, well, maybe I made a mistake even coming here. And suddenly that man looked at him, looked directly at him. He was sitting all the way in the very back, far from anybody else. He pointed him out. He said, young man, you look miserable. Look unto God and be saved. For he is God and there is no one else. And with that, hearing those words applied to his life, suddenly opened a, a window into his soul. Suddenly the light flooded in to his heart and he realized I don't have to know all the answers. I just need to accept what God's done for me in Jesus Christ. Walking home that day, all that snow on the ground, it had finally stopped snowing. He just thought, looked at all the fresh snow and thought, that's my heart. My heart is, is white and clean by the blood of Jesus. And he walked through the door of his home and his mother saw him and said, something wonderful has just happened to you, hasn't it? She could just see the light radiating from his face. Has something wonderful happened to you? something life-changing and forever? Has something wonderful changed you from that day until eternity? If not, come see me. I'm going to be standing across the atrium ready to talk to anyone who wants to take those next steps. If you've experienced that salvation experience, 
What are you doing to make sure every day you walk in the light? Don't go into the world just thinking, "Ah, I've got it figured out by now. Every day, let the Lord know, without you, I am nothing. Walk in the light.